I'm reading from Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we all are we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear him them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. All right. Good morning, everybody. If you're looking to go to Children's Church, if you're 2 to 10, you guys can head out. You almost thought you were going to have to listen to the sermon. But Miss Katie will meet you in the back, and you guys can head out to Children's Church. Oh, I guess it's Carolyn Nancy this morning. Well, you know, I always love when the worship lines up so perfectly with what God's put on my heart to share from his word this week. And Jamie always does such a great job of thinking when we talk early in the week about what the passage says and what that means and how to prepare our hearts for that. And I just felt like this morning especially, there were so many songs that resonated with what we're going to talk about from this text this morning. I mean, Jesus being the center of everything, this being a house of miracles, right? It's one thing to say this is a house of miracles. But do you believe that this is a house of miracles? Do you believe the house of God is a house of miracles? And then uh, Stand in Your Love is one of my all-time favorites after coming here. The first, maybe your second time Laura and I were here at Carlton Landing, we were talking to the elders about coming out here. We were in the tent, and Jim and Joe were leading worship that Sunday. And they were getting ready to do Stand in Your Love, and Joe Carrick, if you knew him, he passed away a couple of months ago. This is one of my favorite memories of Joe said at the beginning of that song, you know, being Irish, I always think of this song as an Irish jig, and then proceeded to sing the song as an Irish jig all the way through, and Laura and I looked at each other like, what have we gotten into here? Like, what is going on in this church? But I came to find out later, because if you know one thing about Joe, you probably know about his sense of humor, but if you know two things about Joe, you know that 
There's a line in that song that he has the power to break off every chain. And if you know another thing about Joe, you know that part of his story is God breaking chains in his heart because of coming here, getting in the word, turning himself over to God, and watching God set him free. And I love that about that song. Now, I still can't think about it, not with an Irish accent, but I also can't think about it without that line of, he has given us the power to break every chain. And this passage this morning, and my sermon is very simple this morning, what changes when you become a Christian? What changes? Is there anything that changes? Do you just join a new group of people? Do you just start believing something different? Do you just start going to church on Sundays instead of going to brunch or playing golf? What changes when you become a Christian? And in fact, I think this, this question is so interesting, both in my own life and in the text, that when Paul says here in chapter 4, you need to be renewed from the futility of your mind. I thought that question was so interesting, I read the whole New Testament trying to answer it, just putting a little mark in my Bible about the renewal of the mind. What is that, what is that like? What does that mean? What can believers know and non-believers can't know? What can believers do and non-believers can't do? And I ended up writing an entire dissertation about that question, which I won't be sharing this morning <laughs> on this. But I'm just telling you, this, this question is so powerful because you go through life and you look at Christians, you say, has anything really changed? Or you look in your own heart and you say, am I really that different from what I was a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago? And what Paul tells us in this passage is, if you are a Christian, here's the so what. Your life is going to be completely different. Top to bottom, from the heart to the head to the hands, your life is going to be completely different. And here's why. Paul uses this metaphor in Ephesians and all over the New Testament of walking. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then in our passage today in verse 17, now I testify and I say this in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Right, walk was a metaphor that was really common in the ancient world. Both Greeks and Jews would use walking as a characteristic for your whole life. Right, walking is your entire manner of being. It is your direction. It is your everyday journey. It is the choices that you make. And I think this was such a powerful metaphor for Paul because when his life changed, he walked differently. Right? He was on his way to Damascus to do the will of what he thought was God's will, but certainly the will of the Pharisees to stamp out Christianity forever, put Christians in prison, argue with them, haul them away, tell them to be quiet. His way of life towards Damascus was get rid of any talk of this man who claims to be the Messiah. And Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, knocks him off his horse, and says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, I'm actually going to take you and turn you around and put you on a new path, and you are going to be my chosen vessel. And now your feet are not going to point towards Christians, they're going to point towards non-Christians. And now you're not going to be somebody 
You're going to go stand before kings and rulers and powerful people, and you're going to tell them what I tell you to say. And from that moment when Paul's eyes were blinded and he continued on his journey, he was never on the same path again for the rest of his life. He was walking in a new way, a new path, a new direction, new steps. And so in, in the letter to Ephesians alone, he uses this metaphor seven times. Two times to say, don't do this. In chapter 2, verse 2, do not walk the way you used to walk in your sins, being a slave to your passions and under the control of the prince of the power of the air. And then here he says, do not walk the way the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind, in hardness of heart. But then five times he tells us how to walk. Chapter 2, verse 10, walk in the good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. Walk on the path that God has laid. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in love, chapter 5, verse 2. Walk as a child of the light, chapter 5, verse 8. And walk in wisdom, chapter 5, verse 15. I think there are several reasons this is such a powerful metaphor, one being any person can do this. It's not a sprint. It's walking, one foot in front of the other, slow and steady. Anybody, anywhere can begin walking, but here's the fundamental change. Your life from when you were a non-Christian to when you were a Christian is now pointed in a totally different direction. Amen. New life, new path, new walking. And so what Paul is walking us through here is this is what the new path is like. This is what a new person walks like. This is what your gate looks like. This is your direction. This is where your steps should be headed. And when you get to the beginning part of this passage, he says, I don't want you to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now watch what he says here. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay, there's something you've got to get here from this passage, which is, the reason that you do the wrong thing is not because you don't know better, it's because you have a heart that doesn't believe better. Notice what Paul says. He says, they are darkened in their thinking, they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to hardness of heart. The root issue here is you need a new heart before you can be on a new path. You need a new heart before you can change your thinking. You need a new heart before you can change your actions. And this is why when we talk about Christians, we shouldn't immediately start talking about what Christians do. We should talk about what Christians worship, what they believe, what their desire is, what their passion is. Because you can actually start to change some of your behavior and stay on the same path. Right? We've probably all done this before. It's like you haven't changed paths and you haven't really changed directions, but now you're walking backwards. Right? You're facing another way, but you are still going to the same destination. You are still walking that direction. Paul says if you just try to change your behavior without anything else, it's like just turning around but heading in the same direction. You actually cannot change your life meaningfully until the object of your desire, your deepest worship, changes. This is another reason why, as Christians, we should never require anyone to clean up their act in order to come to Christ, because they can't. 
They can't. We should never require somebody to act better before they come to church. You know why? They can't. We can't. The only thing we require is, if you want to get on a new path, you must surrender your heart to Christ. That is the only way. You must change the object of your worship and your desire and your worth and your sense of meaning away from self towards God. Right? This is why the solution to become a Christian is not an intellectual exercise. Now you had some historical facts that you previously didn't believe. Now you believe them, you're a Christian. No. The, the solution to becoming a Christian is not shape up or else. The solution to becoming a Christian is to repent, right? Repentance doesn't mean I've done some wrong things. It doesn't mean my life is a series of unfortunate events. It means I have worshiped the wrong things, I've given myself to the wrong things, and now I am changing, right? The most common word in the New Testament for conversion, and we carry this over into the English as well, is to turn. That's what conversion really means. It means with a turning in the Latin. So, if you go through the book of Acts or the book of, uh, of, of Luke, he loves this metaphor, and he traveled with Paul. Surprise, surprise. They both love this walking metaphor of if you want to turn to Christ, your life, your heart, everything about you needs to change. So in Romans chapter 1, when we get a picture of what sin is, he, Paul doesn't just describe it as doing the wrong thing. Right In Romans chapter 1, he says, they suppress the truth, by worshiping created things rather than the creator who is ever to be praised. So the problem is not originally all the lists that we like to hit on in the New Testament. You did this instead of doing this. The problem is suppressing the truth by worshiping the wrong thing. Right? This is exactly what God promises to do in the Old Testament. He doesn't promise that people just generally are going to evolve to be better human beings. He promises, I will give you a new heart. And it will be a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. I will give you my law written on your heart so that everyone will know me and do what I command. The heart of stone cannot do that. But the heart of flesh can and must do that. So it's like when Jesus says, your heart, from the, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? The condition of your heart is going to determine everything in your life. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Where your heart is, there your path is. Where your heart is, there your destination is. You have to get a new heart if you want to follow Christ. So we come to him and we repent saying, Take my hardness of heart and give me a responsive heart. You know, all over the Old Testament, the, the phrase that's used the most often of the people of Israel is that they are a stiff-necked people, right? They are a stiff-necked people, hard of heart. And sometimes it says hard of hearing. So here's what Paul's getting at. He says the problem is not just that they're doing the wrong things. The problem is, in verse 18, they have hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed to practice every kind of impurity. See, here's what happens when you have an old heart of stone is the more you reject, the more you suppress what God has said about himself, the less able you are to respond. 
See, the gift of a new heart isn't just that you become a person who does different things. It's for the first time in your life, you can now respond to God. The problem of hardness of heart is not immorality, right? So sometimes we get all twisted up. I've got a neighbor who's a better person than most of the Christians I know. You hear this or you think about this sometimes? Okay, that sounds good on the surface. And honestly, I'm all for good people. Don't hear me wrong. But that's not the root issue. Hardness of heart is, are they responsive to the one true and living God or not? And if they aren't, what they need is to surrender to him. So Paul says, you're not like that anymore. You're the seat of who you are has changed. You have a new heart. Now, instead of doing what you want to do, you respond to what God wants to do because you can hear his voice. Because your heartbeat is aligned with his. Because when he speaks now, your ears are open to hear him. And you worship him and you desire him. And you focus your life on him. And the path of your life now points towards him. You have a new heart. And if your heart is free, then you can have a new mind. Look at how Paul walks through this. This is just such a beautiful flow in this text. You need a new heart so that you can have a new mind so that you can have a new life, new action. So when you get a new heart, he goes on to say, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Okay, he's taking us to Jesus' school in this passage. You have been schooled in Christ, if indeed you have a new heart. And here's what the school of Christ looks like. You are putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and putting on the new self. Right, this is the way it's written actually is just so profound. He says, put off the old man, put off the old person, the old you. Like in 2 Corinthians, where he says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, a new person. So he says, take off the old person and put on the new person. And in the middle of that, what makes that happen is your mind is going to be renewed. So this metaphor is like taking off an old set of clothes and putting on a new set of clothes. And part of the renewing of the mind is knowing what clothes suit your new life. So it's like the picture of going into a closet and saying, I am now a new creation. I am now in a different circumstance, and I need to dress the part. Right. So a few years ago, we were in England, and I told you a few weeks ago that I brought a pair of red wing boots I'd never worn before. That was old self. That was not a great idea. But the other thing that we did was we, you know, we were packing with no check bags or anything, so we brought touristy clothes. I mean, just comfortable clothes, except every one of us, myself, my dad, and my mom, packed our best outfit that we owned. I packed my best suit, my best tie, a press shirt, because when we got there, we were going to a cocktail party at Downton Abbey, at High Clear Castle. And you don't go into Downton Abbey wearing tourist clothes. You go into Downton Abbey dressed to the nines. And even then, I was totally underdressed. For, because for them, a suit is like what you work in the yard in over there. I mean, they, they, they were wearing tails and tuxes and bow ties. And it was when we walked in, we just felt so privileged, so amazing to get to be there. And we also felt good that we looked the part, right? When you go into a place like that, it takes wisdom, it takes discernment to know 
What am I going to need to have when I get there? What am I going to need to wear? This is why you text your friends before you go to something. What are you wearing? What are you guys wearing? Because the process of discerning what is going to fit the occasion is learned, right? Nobody is born knowing what to wear to a certain event. You learn it. It's culturally conditioned. And you want to match or you want to stick out in a very specific way from what everybody else is wearing. And the Christian life is exactly like this. This is what Paul is saying. You've got to learn how to dress as a Christian. You've got to learn what it means to go in and put on the new self, the new self that is fitting your new path in your new life. So as we go through our life, one of the things that we're learning by the renewal of our mind is, what is God's will for my life? See, non-believers, nowhere in the New Testament can they know what God's will is for their life. They can read the Bible, they can understand what God's about, but they can't know what God is specifically calling them to put on. What Paul says that is so revolutionary is when you begin to be renewed in your mind, when you begin to walk by the Spirit, and you begin to learn what God has for you in your new life, you are perfectly well-dressed for the job that God has given you. That pathway in 210 that he says he has preordained a path of good works for you. He's going to give you every article of clothing that you need for that path. Right? It's not a coincidence that later in chapter 6, which we'll get to in about three weeks, he says, put on the full armor of God because you're in a war. You are in a spiritual war. And what do you wear in war? Armor. So what do you wear in the Christian life? Well, you begin to put on your new nature. You begin to put on your new self. And I think this is one of the most profound, beautiful verses, underestimated verses in the New Testament. He says, put off your old self, in verse 23, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed by the spirit of your minds so that you will put on the new self. And then listen to this. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Your new life, your new wardrobe, what you're putting on is the image of God. It's like God is now drawing a self-portrait in your life. Your new self, your new path, your new direction is to look exactly like him. You've been recreated with a new nature, the nature that God gave you before sin ever entered. Your new nature is to look like him in the world, to represent him in the world, to be an image of him that when people look at you, they say, you look just like your father. So your role and my role in the Christian life is not that ambiguous. Begin to look like God. Amen. Begin to look like what he would do if he were in your situation. Begin to wear the things that become a person who is in the court of heaven. And so in verses 25 through the end of the chapter 32, Paul gives seven applications, seven examples of God-like, Christ-like adornment for your life. I'm just going to read all seven, and then I'm going to pick two to go over, but I want you to think about how each of these mirrors God. These are not arbitrary things like be nice to each other because that's really good to be around. It's do this because your heavenly Father is like this. So he says, therefore, having put away all falsehood, speak truth with your neighbor. We talked last week about speaking the truth in love, which really means live a life of truth, 
in love. Live truth with other people in love because God is true. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. God's word is true. He has never done anything that has been anything but true. So speak the truth with one another because that's what your heavenly father does. And he says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Or you know that God gets angry, right? You've read the Old Testament. I mean, he, he does get angry, but he never sins. In fact, I'm going to come back to this one because if you never get angry, something is wrong. Something is wrong. So he says, give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. I love what Nancy said here. If you're a thief, stop stealing. <laughs> this is just amazing. It's so frank. If you are a thief, stop, because your heavenly father is a giver. He is the father of every good gift. In fact, there's nothing that you need that he hasn't given to you. So act like him. Give. Stop stealing. Do your own labor. Work with your own hands so that you might have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that you may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. This is in chapter 1, verse 14. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. All seven of these you could practice today. And all of them come from having a heart that is turned towards God, a mind that is being renewed. How do I go about forgiving? How do I go about being angry and not sinning? How do I go about working so that I can give things away to other people? This is the process of walking on the new path. So let's take a couple of these and just flesh these out. So be angry and do not sin. This is such a relief to read this, if you've ever been angry before. Because he's saying it's okay to be angry. In fact, anger is interesting because among the emotions, anger is a referred emotion, right? Anger is never for its own sake. Anger is always for something else. So you might be angry because you care about something, and that thing has been violated, right? Sometimes we're angry because we've been embarrassed. Or we're angry because we didn't feel safe. Or we're angry because someone that we love is being attacked. And so what the object is of your anger really determines whether it's righteous anger or unrighteous anger. So Jesus, for example, gets angry in the Gospels, but always in a righteous way, and always in a way that doesn't lead to sin, but leads to building others up. Like, I'm thinking of the story in Mark chapter 3 where you have a person who has a withered hand. And the Pharisees, seeking to trick Jesus, kind of start to bait him into whether or not he's going to heal this man because it's the Sabbath. You're not going to violate the Sabbath by healing this guy, are you? And it says Jesus grew angry in his spirit. Now, what was that referring to? What was that anger about? People who were using other people to make themselves look good when their hearts were far from God. That always makes Jesus angry. Hypocrisy in the New Testament always makes Jesus angry. Why? Because it's the outer appearance of a new life without the repentance. Right? It's what Paul says later, it's having the appearance of godliness in 2 Timothy, but denying its power. Having a life that is, as Jesus says, dirty on the inside but squeaky clean on the outside. Jesus hates that kind of thing. And so he's angry. And you know what Jesus does in that story? Do you remember how this goes? 
He looks at them, he's angry, and he says, stretch out your hand, and he heals them. Because, you know, Jesus was perfectly renewed in his mind. He knew exactly what to do in every circumstance to glorify God and walk in his ways. And so when you have the false choice of, do you honor the Sabbath according to man's principles, or do you express the heart of God and heal this man who needs to be healed? Jesus knew between those choices you always heal. You always do what God is in the business of doing, healing and restoring and reconciling. So anger is not always bad, but it depends on what it refers to, and it depends on what you do about it. If you're angry because you look bad, which is a very common form of anger, that could be a very sinful kind of anger. Because sometimes in your life, you're going to have to look bad for God to look good. And so if every time you look bad, you get angry, that's an unrighteous kind of anger. But the other side is, what do you do with your anger? If you have anger in your life that might be righteous, that might be unrighteous, what do you do about it? See, because he adds these next two little tags. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give opportunity to the devil. Do not allow anger to fester in your heart. It's a foothold for the devil. If you've ever been to our house, you know that Laura is a great cook. She is a fantastic cook and baker, but you might not know this. I am a fantastic dish doer because our deal is if you cook, you don't do the dishes. I have never cooked, therefore I've always done the dishes. And there's things you learn when you're doing dishes that you didn't otherwise know. I certainly didn't know them, like which things to soak and which things to scrub, which things to put in the dishwasher and which things to put on the counter after you've washed them, which types of chemicals can go on these dishes. This is a complicated thing. But here's what I've learned about dishes that is exactly the same as what he's talking about with anger. The longer you let the dishes go, the harder they are to deal with, right? If you go to bed with dirty dishes, you're going to wake up with a monster in your sink. And it's going to take you forever to deal with it. It's going to be more difficult. It's going to smell bad. Your house will now be filled. Instead of the aroma of a fresh cooked meal, it will be the aroma of dirty dishes in your house. See, here's the thing. The longer you wait with anger, the harder it is to get rid of. This is why the practical advice of don't go to bed when you're angry, that's great advice because when you wake up the next morning, it will be calcified and solidified in a way that it wasn't before. And here's another thing. Your house has an aroma in it. If you're married, if you have kids, your house has an aroma. And if you leave dirty dishes around your house, people will smell it. If you come into a house where there's anger and grudges and strife and they've just gotten done with an argument literally four seconds before you walked in the door, you can smell it. You can tell. Anger leaks. It's not something that if you just leave it alone, it goes away. And you know what? The only difference between a house that is clean and a sink that has no dishes and cabinets that are stocked with clean dishes and one that isn't is that people have done the dishes, right? Every house gets messy. 
Every house gets dirty. If you are in the business of having a great time and hosting and enjoying good food, you are going to have dirty dishes. And if you, in your marriage, in your home, if you're in the business of doing life with other people and hosting and bringing other people in and having a great time, chances are your marriage is going to have dirty dishes. And you don't have to be a superhuman to be like, oh, well, you know, those people, they just never have any trouble. No, they do their dishes. That's the difference. Like, they clean up. And sometimes I don't. That's the difference. It's not that they're better. It's not that they're more holy. It's that they get this principle that Paul's talking about. Do your dishes. Do them the night of. Take care of it while things aren't set in stone because the longer you wait, the tougher it is. If you have anger in your life with a coworker, if you have anger in your life with a child, take a moment to do your dishes. Right In your house, sometimes we say this to each other. We need to take a moment and do our dishes. Because that festering anger is the foothold that Satan wants to drive a wedge between you. And so, just like God, who didn't leave us on our own, this is Romans chapter 5, when we were still rebels, we hadn't turned around, we weren't walking towards him, we weren't doing anything but rebelling, God said, it's time for me to do the dishes. He sent his son at the right time, while we were still sinners, to bridge the gap and make reconciliation with us. You know, people get all twisted up in chapter 5. This is really going to be good in a couple of weeks because you have the marriage section of Ephesians, right? And there's a lot here. There's a lot of arguments respecting and loving and who's the covenant head and who's not. And we're going to have a great time with that in two weeks. But I always think about this, the whole headship leadership thing. What if your first step towards that was just initiating the conversation about doing the dishes? Just initiating, hey, there's some anger here. I really need to confess, and we really need to talk about it. There's some things we need to let soak for a few days, but I just want to start that process now and then talk about it later. If that is spiritual leadership, now it's like, who wants to be the spiritual leader? A lot of hands go down. Because one of the roles that God has ordained in your home is to be a person who forgives and who brings up sins and who confesses and who makes sure that everybody knows that you are encouraging them, giving grace to those who hear. That's what the picture of this godly life revolves around. People who will take the initiative and say, I'm not going to let the sun go down on this. It's awkward and we just need to break through the awkwardness and have this talk because I'm not willing to give Satan a foothold in our home. The other one I just want to point to before we end is this final one that is just the purest test of a new heart, right? This is, this is a form of walking in godliness, recreated after him. In verse 32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you have a new heart and a new mind and a new path for your life, the mark will be forgiveness, not just forgiveness of your own heart, but your willingness to forgive other people. A heart of stone can't do that. A heart of stone can paper over things, but only when you've been forgiven can you forgive other people. Here's what I'll end with. I always think of the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. Do you remember Stephen? He's a deacon, and we're going to commission deacons next week. I'm not saying this as in the deacons have to do this, but you know, Stephen is out preaching this amazing sermon before all these people, and they get really angry, and they actually drag Stephen out to stone him, and he continues to preach. And something amazing happens at the end of the story of Stephen that I want to point to your attention. 
It says they dragged him out of town because of his preaching, and they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried aloud with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later write this letter to the Ephesians. Forgive, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And he cried out, Stephen, as they were stoning him, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know who had said those words previously? Jesus Christ, being nailed to a cross. And here's what I think. Here's what I think. This is not in the text, but here's what I think. Stephen looks up and he sees heaven open and he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and he cries out to him. And you know what I think Jesus said back to him? Forgive him, Stephen. Forgive him. Forgive him just as you've been forgiven. Forgive just like I did when I went to the cross. Forgive them, because that's the mark of somebody who is walking with a new heart. Forgive them. And Stephen, Lord, don't hold this against them. Only a transformed heart could ever lead you to do that. And we as Christians are called, forgive others. Walk in love, walk in truth, be angry and do not sin. Let uplifting things come out of your mouth because that's exactly what our Savior did. And we are created to be like him. So as Jamie comes up to lead us in worship this morning, I just want to ask you a question. What's changing in your life? Where are you? What path are you on? Are you on a new path? Are you tired of the old path, but you're still walking on that old path? If so, you need a new heart. The only thing you can do is come and surrender to Christ and ask him to replace your heart, to repent of your sins, so that you can be part of his family again. You can have a heart that's now responsive to him. Are you on a new path, but standing still? You've been created for more than that. Your mind is being renewed every day as you study his word, as you pray, so that you can be dressed and ready for action. And so take a moment and pray. If you want to be on a new path, this is your day to be on a new path. Because you can do it anytime. You can come up here if you want to. You can come see me or you can sit in your seat and say, Lord, I am all out of options. I need a new heart. I need to repent. Or you can sit there and say, Lord, when I look back, nothing really is different about my life than it was five years ago. Show me how to put off the old self and put on the new self. Show me how to listen to conviction. Show me how to deal with my anger. Show me how to deal with putting myself first. So as we worship, do what you need to do this morning to walk on the new path of life with Christ. Let me pray. Father, I ask that your spirit would do what you love to do, which is to turn around, put someone on a new path this morning, to help all of us be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to take one step on this path towards you. Father, I pray this morning for holy conviction, 
that you would help us to see the areas where we are giving the enemy a foothold, where we have things we need to deal with. In fact, Father, I pray that as those things come up to the surface, we wouldn't wait for anything to deal with that. Father, I pray that you would help us to speak encouraging words to one another, to put away malice and grudge holding and envy and strife, but to speak what is fitting. Father, as we open our mouths this week, would you fill them with godly words? And Father, above all, would you help us to model forgiveness that you've given to us so that we can freely give.